0: Welcome to Money Memoirs, a taboo-breaking interview series sharing intimately uncensored conversations about money. I am Barry Tesler, a financial therapist, author, and creator of The Art of Money, my year-long money school and global community. Join me as I connect with brave folks from all walks of life to explore their experiences with money from their greatest struggles to triumphant celebrations, to lessons learned, and unexpected discoveries along the way. These interviews are raw, heartfelt money stories. They're vulnerable, inspiring, and always authentic. These interviews are a snapshot of the personal connection and practical support you'll find in my year-long money school, The Art of Money. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps. And it blends together therapeutic, body-based practices with so many real-life tools that you need to create healthy, sustainable change in your money life. If you'd like to learn more, head to BarryTesler.com. For now, get comfy and cozy for another intimately uncensored money memoir. Welcome, everyone, to my beloved money memoir series that I've been doing for many, many, many years now. And today I have the honor of interviewing Manisha Thakur, who I have known for so many years in the field, and we have never met, which is just amazing to me. So I'm so honored and excited to have her today. I'm going to read a little bit about her bio and then we'll dive in. So Manisha is a certified financial planner. She also earned her MBA from Harvard Business School. She is a 25-year veteran of the financial services industry and she is very passionate about financial literacy for women. She started off on the institutional side of the business, working at various points as an analyst, Portfolio Manager and Client Relations Executive for institutional money management firms with billions of dollars in assets under management. In 2009, she switched gears to focus on individuals, launching her financial education consultancy. In 2012, she started her own female-focused registered investment advisory firm money Zen wealth management in 2015 she merged that practice into buckingham strategic wealth where she took on the role of director of wealth strategies for women today she serves as the vice president of financial education at brighton jones she sits on the board of the national endowment for financial education and on faculty at the omega institute for women's leadership She's also the co-author of two personal finance books for young women in their 20s and 30s called On My Own Two Feet and Get Financially Naked. Manisha very happily lives in Portland, Oregon. She's visited over 37 countries. I am so excited to have you here today. Welcome.
1: It is such a pleasure to actually get to talk to you after all of these years of knowing about your wonderful work. I feel the same.
0: I feel the same. I feel it's amazing that our our we did we haven't actually met, even though you know, I've known about you for so many years and you know, you were just such a high profile person in the financial planning world, and you did so much TV for a long time. I don't know if you're doing that any longer. We can talk about that, and I have your books, and and so on, so it's so wonderful to have you today. Thank you. Okay, so where are you at right now? Uh, if you'll give us a little snapshot of family, work life? Where
1: are you at? And what's really important to you at this time? Oh, my. So I am turning 50 next year. And I can't believe how quickly that has come up on me. And so I am smack in the middle of a midlife crisis. Um, I got divorced a couple of years ago. And um, my family lives on the East Coast. And I thought about heading back. But that felt like announcing I'd failed adulting. So I um, did my own version of Eat, Love, Pray, and I rented places on Airbnb. And in my crazy divorce brain, um, the metric that I used to pick cities was the density of good coffee per capita as defined by third wave coffee houses. So I landed in Portland in August, and anybody who's ever been to Portland, Oregon in August knows it's like love at first sight. And so I moved here without knowing a single person. And I'm telling this story because it, it reflects back in many ways on, on money and the rest of the things I, I left with my mini Cooper, my books and my clothes. That's what I left my marriage with. Um, I didn't, I, I, I wanted a clean slate. And so when I moved to Portland, I didn't even have a fork with me. So everything that I brought into my new life was was a conscious decision to bring it in. Um, And so from possessions to work to hobbies, I think the only thing I kept consistent were family and friends. Um, So I'm in Portland, Oregon right now, and I work for a wonderful wealth management firm based out of Seattle called Brighton Jones. And I'm living my dream life because my role at the firm is really to help spread the word about the power of financial education and financial well-being. Amazing. Okay,
0: so I turned 50 at the beginning of this year, so I will welcome you to this wonderful club. Um, I've been celebrating the entire year, the entire, Ooh. yeah. I mean, there's been travel, uh there was a photo shoot in Montreal because I just wanted to visit a new city, and I met my photographer there and did photos of me now and a little boudoir even, which is you know yeah. Um, so just it's been a it's been a year long celebration, um, and I love that you say for you it's a bit of a midlife crisis um, and big transition from getting divorced and moving across the country and I know Portland in August because that's I, we've always been there in July and August and think like it's the most ideal place live um because it's so sunny right
1: um well and, yeah. you know uh, one thing that just hit me is i forgot to mention the crisis part of all of it um okay. not that getting divorced isn't a, isn't a crisis but um approaching 50 i i don't have kids and um I, so i'm thinking you know what is what is my purpose here what am i supposed to do and you know the the politically correct answer would be to say to keep doing what I am doing and just to keep educating. But I'm I'm really having like a soul based crisis um, because what happens in this the the world that um, I was orbiting in when I was doing a lot of TV and all of that is a very um, it can, it's like your ego gets sucked out of your head um, by this gigantic magnet, and it's like right in front of you all the time, and I, I don't want to be that person anymore. And so I'm trying to figure out how uh, – I mean, we all have an ego. I'm trying to figure out how to quiet mine and really figure out what I want to do um, for hopefully the next 50 years.
0: Okay, okay. Real honest, I, I appreciate that about you, and I, I could sense just from afar you know that you had been going through a really significant shift in identity, in your work, as you're saying, in your ego. Um, so much because you were someone who did so much TV, and that always impressed me because I'm not someone who can do that. Or, and so you did so much, and you were everywhere, you are on. Every single media outlet, you wrote two books, young, I mean it's all relative, you know it's all you know we all have different timelines for success markers, right, but you wrote those books, um, so will you share a little bit more, yeah, about that journey and you you shared it, but just how your work has shifted from working and managing such large um, investment portfolios to moving more into financial literacy for women to having your own firm and business to then choosing to take what you say what I saw on your website is an ideal job for you, and there's such a journey in there for yourself and your work and where you're at and i and I hear that you're still in the process of
1: discovering that. Can you just share more about that journey? For you? sure, so I feel like um. When I left the institutional world, um, I had a really strong desire to help individuals. I loved my time on the institutional side, but you're managing portfolios for endowments, foundations, corporations, and you establish wonderful relationships with your, your counterparts on the client side, but you never really get to, well, you don't ever get to see the end client, the person who is benefiting from that portfolio that you're managing um and so i wanted to see what kind of difference i could make in real people's lives and um i feel like there's so much i don't know if i would call it pressure um yeah i think i would call it pressure <laughs> to to be an entrepreneur these days okay. and so i decided to start my own wealth management practice um, and this is while I was still married, and I was living in Santa Fe, um, New Mexico. And um, it turns out I'm a really crappy entrepreneur. Like, I just – I I am. I love the the piece of the business, which is helping people manage their money. But when you have your own practice, you have employees, and you have compliance, and you have payroll, and um, there are all these other bits and pieces of it. And I bring that up because I feel like – Entrepreneurship has been such a wonderful path for so many women, um, but it's not right for all of us. And I felt a lot of shame when I put up the red flag and said, "Like, I, I can't do this. Like, this is, I'm really bad at this." And so um, I I realized that I'm what I now call an intrapreneur. I'm great at building businesses or divisions within uh, mm-hmm. an entity, and I love. I I love being able to use um the resources of an of an existing entity um to create something new but it was really hard to admit to myself especially coming from business school where like that's nirvana to start your own company and 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 see it grow and flourish and IPO and um mm-hmm. and Realizing that was not going to be my path because I was not good at it. Um, and so once I made peace with that, um, I finally settled in and realized the real question, um, is how do you help people? Um, because the industry, the financial services industry so often is set up to help wealthy people, but how do you get to be wealthy if no one will help you? And so, um, that's when the the piece that I've been focused on and um, one of the things that I'm most excited about with my work at Brighton Jones is uh, we've historically managed money for people with a million dollars or more but we have launched um, a, a, a division where we can manage money for um, anyone who is out of debt and is starting to save and and wants uh high quality advice and guidance. And for the first time in years, I feel really proud to say I'm part of the financial advisory industry because Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm at a place and a a firm where we can help everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of the reason I have kept monies in. Um, going as a separate entity, or I guess side gig is the, the term they use these days, is I needed a vehicle where I could help and teach anyone. Um, and so I'm I'm excited to see sort of both worlds, my corporate job and my side gig all come together um, in terms of being able to make a, a broader impact, irrespective of income level and asset level.
0: It's so important. And I think it's changing. I'm seeing a few more um, companies pop up or, you know, where they're willing, not just willing, but they want to, ma- they want to support people at all different income levels. If you've 50000 if you've 100000 thousand, and that's so important because it's been so inaccessible to so many people. Um, and so you're getting to work with people from all different lineage, economic backgrounds, and income levels. Wonderful. Okay. So, um, there's so much more there. And I also know though, that there's been such an inner journey for you. Um, an inner journey. I mean, you spoke about it just, um, of realizing you're not that kind of entrepreneur. You're more of an entrepreneur, you know, um, and some shame around that. And I think it's a psycho spiritual practice for all of us when we're starting a business and no one talks about that, but it is. Um, but I know that, you know, also, your own personal journey. I know you have a spiritual practice. I I sense you've been to therapy. My sense is, you know, a lot, a a lot lot lot. of therapy. (laughs) So share, share some about that, because again, you were in such a high profile out there so much. And I know you've had a big inner change and transformation and journey that you've been on along the way and then had, you know, chose to get a, a divorce and are moving into, um, different work that combines so much, but tell us about some of the inner journey that you've been on as you're, as you're heading into 50.
1: The biggest piece, and I'll start at the end of this story, is that three years ago I was finally, uh, properly diagnosed as bipolar. And, um, Starting in early college, which is oftentimes when you see onset of bipolar or schizophrenia, um, uh, I was having these wild swings between depression and then thinking every feeling like everything was fine. And um, when I was depressed, I remember the first thing I did was go to the student clinic at, at Wellesley, where I did my undergrad, and. You start with talk therapy, blah blah blah, and then um, I moved on. Um, I graduated, and I kept seeking um, therapeutic help in the form of talk therapy, which um, definitely helped. I feel like all of us—it's the rare individual that doesn't have stuff to 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 sort through. And in my case, this is a little bit of a long answer, but I want to explain how the stuff uh, meshes with the mental health diagnosis and why I'm so public about saying that I'm, I'm bipolar. The, uh, growing up, I was, you know, fat, chubby, had, I'm of Indian heritage. Indian women often have hair in parts of their faces where no woman should have hair. And, um, I grew up in a small town in Indiana and um, there were no threading boutiques. Like there was no, um, I was, an, I was an odd duck from the very beginning, and I didn't fit in, and the only place I found solace was with adults, and I found that the harder I studied, um, the more accolades I would get from um, teachers, and because I wasn't invited to the slumber parties or the dances or anything else, that my identity became very, very tightly linked to work. And then when I got to college and then beyond, what would happen is I would have these periods where I would work like a maniac, um, and I'd pull all nighters and I would, um, just be so intense and driven. But in the institutional Wall Street world, that's just called being a good employee. Yeah. So as I was vacillating between depression and these periods of crazy intense work, um, no one thought that was abnormal because um who wouldn 't crash after you know months and months of a hundred hour weeks or um what um what the case may be and it turned out um and I actually had to see several different psychiatrists before it was I was actually properly diagnosed um, so I feel like my inner journey has been on two different levels: one is psychological and making peace with the little girl who felt un unwanted. Um, and I think so many of us have that person in us and it blows my mind that it, it literally has taken 40 years to get over what happened to me when I was in fifth and sixth grade. Um, and then this, the, uh, the chemical journey that I've been on and getting properly, um, diagnosed, um, and it's just given me such awareness of, um, how little emphasis as a society we place on um, helping the traditional medical establishment identify individuals with chemical imbalances who truly have a mental illness um and and need to be um in my case on atypical antipsychotics in order to to function so that that's been it's been an interesting path because it's been both in my heart and in my head,
0: <laughs> literally
1: yes. and figuratively. Yes. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that openly and honestly. I saw that you shared that on your website Um, and facts about you, everything from your favorite warm drink to how many countries you've traveled to um things you're working with, you know, when you share that you're bipolar Um and that's just so real. I mean, it's so real that for you your journey um that that it looked in the in in the financial world is like normal behavior, you know, the amount of hours, the mania, um it's just all part of it. Like that was so normal, which says so much about our culture, right? Um yeah, and I'm just I'm just so happy that However long it's taken, you know, some of us it takes a long, long time. I mean, that was part of why in my twenties I went to train to be a therapist was to work on childhood, you know, and to survive make it through those years. I, I don't think I would have if I hadn't have done my own therapy, you know, and trained to be a therapist. And um so the fact that you found talk therapy, which, you know, works to some degree, right? And then there's trauma therapy and there's other right, other modalities that maybe more beneficial you know in in addition to talk therapy right
1: well and i feel like it's there's no one right answer um and it's like it, it i it's such an overused phrase but it really is like peeling back an onion and um you know in my personal case i needed talk therapy to clear off that outer layer so it could be clear that there really was something fundamentally wrong at the core of my onion that chemically wrong Um, and had I not had talk therapy and worked through all of those issues, um, there might have still, there might've still been confusion about what really was the root cause in my head. So I, I, um, want to make sure that it didn't come across as if I were saying that talk therapy is not a useful, um, tool. I think it's incredibly valuable, I think valuable, and I think any, um, any method that brings you peace and helps you get closer to identifying whatever pain is inside of you and help expunge it is um, invaluable. And I think for each one of us, it's different. For some people, it's cranial sacral therapy. For some people, it's somatic. It's it's um, true. it's so individual. Um, But it's also so universal that it's the rare person who doesn't have some kind of pain um, inside them. And the question is, are you going to be a person who acknowledges it, addresses it, and like a splinter, helps it move out of you over time? Or are you going to form a cyst around it and um, just close in around it and, and let it be inside of you and be painful for your whole life?
0: Yes, true, true. And I just resonated with that talk therapy was the doorway in and so important. It was for me, too, until I found my way to somatic therapy. Um, But I wouldn't have found it if I hadn't had started with talk therapy, you know. So, yes, whatever the doorways are in, and it's all part of peeling back the layers, as you're saying. Do you find that you have made connections around mental mental health and relationship to money for women and that – More women have come to you um, with mental health issues, which is there's a spectrum. So that's uh, almost all of us, right? We're somewhere on the spectrum there. Can you share a little bit about any connections? I know that's probably
1: a huge topic. It is, and it's one that I feel... um, I want to spend as much time talking about publicly mm-hmm. because you can look at somebody's resume and think, oh wow, that's a fancy resume. Then I want people to know that, um, two things. One, having a mental, um, illness does not, or having chemical imbalances, um, in your brain does not prevent you from accomplishing things if you want to and, and, dreaming big and achieving those dreams, at the same time, there's so much stigma around it. I try and talk about it as as much as possible because I want people to talk about it like, you know, I have a cavity or, you know, I broke my arm or I I wish it would be such a less judgmental kind of topic, and it's not. Um, And I have to say, it's not that I'm so brave. I started talking about it the moment I stopped working with clients one-on-one once I had merged my practice um, and I started taking on more of a thought leader type role, um, both within Money's Zen and within my corporate jobs, then I felt free to speak openly about it. So, um, and that's tough, right? I mean, if you had worked your tushy off and had $7 million and wanted to come to a wealth manager and they said, Oh, by the way i'm bipolar. Um, you know how would that feel to you and and there's a lot of you know I, I wonder is that something I should have disclosed Should i you know there's I have a lot of mixed feelings uh, around it, but I can understand why so many people for so many different reasons, um, societally or professionally, struggle with whether or not to be open about um, their mental challenges and ironically, so many people with mental health issues are so talented, and so to have those gifts of theirs be curtailed because they're not getting care, because we don't talk about it enough, um, I think is a, um, a, a state of affairs that if when I pass my time on earth, I've made a tiny little bit of progress in terms of changing that algorithm, I'll feel like I did something.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I can see if someone's looking for a wealth manager, I don't know, it depends, you know, if they're working with a mental illness themselves or their own chemical imbalance, they may want someone like you who's been through it and knows that experience. And certainly, if you're, you know, a financial coach, you know, financial therapist, money coach, if you're in that role, then I would think people would flock to you because. Oh, yeah. You you obviously it's different. It's unique. We're all individual. We're all unique. Um, and then we share patterns right as well. So any money patterns and then we'll start moving more into your own money story. But any money patterns as we begin that you can identify have been impacted by having a chemical imbalance and a strategy or f- a few of how you've learned for yourself how to work with it.
1: It's a, that's a really interesting question. I've never thought about it that way. Um, let me rewind and maybe answer it in two parts. Um, you had asked earlier, and I didn't address this, um, whether talking about it led more people to come and and reach out. And that has absolutely been the case. I have found it all over the place. I find it with um, people who have read something I wrote and ended up on the website and saw I had it and reached out or um, I, anytime I mention it, it seems to, it's it's a magnet for anybody who um, is struggling because we don't hear people talk about it. Um, And I have found that without a doubt, many women, particularly those who struggle with uh, deep depression and um, anxiety and have felt Shamed by their families or um, their broader communities for having widely fluctuating moods um, really have um, felt comfortable talking um, with me um, in terms of money habits though what's fascinating is um those of us with mental Health challenges are the same as everybody else. There are savers, there are spenders, there are people who open the menu and look at the left side first and people who look at the right side first. You know, they, the people that are interested in the experience no matter what the cost and the people that are interested in the cost no matter what the experience. And, um. I love that. Yes. Keep, keep saying that. Of course. You know, (laughs) you know, yes. So we're, and in that way, uh, uh, I think the human condition um, is the same when it comes to dealing with money in that there's a wide range um, of a spectrum mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and nothing that I've noticed specifically other than to say one of the signs of bipolar in some people can be when they're in mania, they um, engage in either excessive gambling or excessive like way over the top spending Um has been one one trait that sometimes you see with mania but that literally is the only thing that i've noticed is different and then i would say this one thing i did
0: see more with depression i think um with some clients who they they couldn't stick to any kind of bookkeeping system or paying their bills mm. on time i remember that over the years um there was a lot of procrastination and that's a really interesting term in itself Um, Because we all have that, you know, in varying degrees. And um, I don't even think I like that word, (laughs) really. But, um, yeah, I noticed that some of my folks who were more in a deep, depressive state, they just could not get themselves to have a consistent bookkeeping practice where they were looking and paying bills on time. And it was really hard to create a practice yeah, a money practice with money dates. And that's what I noticed on that side. So with mania, we could see the extra spending in certain phases, right? Um, Or gambling or things like that and depression I don't know
1: if you does that resonate with you? It absolutely does. Um, I was uh, interviewing um, Laura Vanderkam, who is a time management expert. And if people haven't um, heard of her work, it's wonderful um her signature book is 168 hours which is how many hours we have in a week and she helps people find um leaks um places where they could be better allocating those 168 hours and she was saying um that when people say i don't have time um what they're really saying is it's not a priority and when you're in deep depression, of course, it's not a priority. Like you are in so much pain, like all you can do is um, try and get out of bed, stop crying, put one foot in front of the other. I mean, I think people who don't haven't experienced depression don't understand. Like we'll say it, it, it's in your head, but um, it's in our heads in a very different way, and so we're in self-protection mode oftentimes, and. Um, so that would make total sense to me. And the line between financial coaching and um, a lot of the institutional work that I've done is a fascinating one to me. I think the really um, fun and juicy part is um, on the financial coaching side, because that really gets to the intersection of money and life and and your heart and everything that you really care about. Um, it, it's as i'm I'm thinking about it out loud here, I'm realizing I probably um have not seen that as frequently as you have because in the uh environment in which I have up to this point worked with people around money, they have what I call their glossy bio, their glossy face on um and you know people don't walk into a portfolio manager's office oftentimes and be as honest as they would with a, a money therapist and a money coach, because they feel like, okay, this is a safe place to let myself be myself where the wall street world is really not a safe place to, to be
0: yourself. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, and I don't work privately with folks anymore. I, I typically teach in my large group program with a lot of folks each year. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm, giving them all the tools so that when they show show up to that glossy place, that glossy meeting, they can uh, stay in their bodies. They can ask some new questions um that they didn't know that they could ask before you know they can stand up for things or they can say really where is my money going you know is it in alignment with my values and so on right so trying to give people so many tools and skills and practices and strategies so when they show up right and that they find someone that they feel safe with too you know um so let's go into a little bit about your money story um and how it was created and formed and what's worked and what hasn't and any challenges and successes and things you've had to overcome and how you've done that. So I'd like to start with what are the main set of emotions that come up for you around money? And that could be what they are now. And then we'll start moving more into what they were in your childhood. And I'd love to hear more about that.
1: So now um, my biggest emotion around money is should I take the plunge or not? I've hit the point where I can afford to retire, and I'm really struggling do Do I want to retire and devote myself to volunteer work? Do I want to continue to work full time? Do I want to figure out some type of part time arrangement and um, so it's um, i'm I feel like I'm at a point where I'm trying to figure out. Um, okay, I climbed the summit, I saved, I invested, I'm debt free, I did all the things that you're supposed to do. And they involved a lot of sacrifices over the years. And now I'm up at the top of the the summit and I'm looking around and thinking, okay, now what? Um, Do I go down this path or do I go down that path? How do I want to get back down the mountain? Um, Or do I want to get back down the mountain? And so that's where I am right now. Now, and I I say that because a lot of people think, oh, if I just get rid of my debt, oh, if I could just earn more money, oh, if I could just be sure that I, you know, when I run my retirement simulations, it shows I have 99.9999% odds of not outliving my money, that um, suddenly you won't have any conundrums. Um, you do, and also still, even though when I run in, in the industry, we call it a Monte Carlo simulation where we do lots of different iterations, assuming different rates of returns in the market in different orders, um, different levels of inflation and assuming you lived 80, 90, 100, 110. Um, even though my Monte Carlo shows that I could spend twice as much money as I'm currently spending, I still Worry about being a bad lady. So, I would say that's the other piece that I find so fascinating that I did all the right things to end up in a really financially stable place. And I know in the rational side of my brain that I'm, I'm you know, barring something um, completely catastrophic, my odds of ending up a bad lady are exceptionally small. But that's, I would say, the biggest. Fear. So I feel like I've got a conundrum and a fear right now around, around money. Yeah. And um, I want to know how you work with that.
0: And also at the same time, I'm assuming maybe if I shouldn't, that you were a saver from a little, you know, you were the, you were a saver as a little girl. That was your role. You took that on. And I'd love to hear more. You mentioned your family is from India or is Indian. I don't know if your parents are from India, so please share more about that. Yeah, let's go back there first and then we can move into how your how you work with that. There's enough. There's more than enough. There's, you know, all the algorithms tell you, you know, and you still have some mind chatter, some fears that come up. But
1: let's go. Terror. Like, it's not just mind chatter. It, it's terror, like when the bad lady thought comes in, you know. it's. Um, so my dad came over from India to go to grad school, and it's the classic story with, you know, the suitcase and the hundred bucks, and he climbed up from the bootstraps, and he um, had an Amazingly successful career. He ultimately ended up becoming the chief financial officer for a, a Fortune 500 company. At, at um, the time, it was a company called Arvin Industries, which made mufflers for 90% of the cars in America. It's since been swallowed into a variety of conglomerates. Um, but it was head, world headquartered in Columbus, Indiana, where Cummins Engine Company is also headquartered. My mom is uh, American from upstate New York. And so I come from, um, uh, um, a mixed race background. But I would say, um, my, um, my parents have had such an influence and I feel so blessed. My dad, contrary to a lot of fathers, particularly in Southeast Asia, always talked to me about money uh, the same way he's always talked to my brother about money. And one of my earliest money memories, um, it's really seared in my brain, is this father-daughter bonding exercise we had where my dad sent me down with his HP-12C calculator and showed me um, how to use it to compound out if I save the max in my IRA, which at that time was $2,000 um, years ago, and I put my babysitting and lawn mowing money in there, hypothetically speaking, and it grew um, at 6%, 7%, 8%, how much I'd have. And um, just seeing and using that calculator to um, get a visceral and a tactile, tactile sense of compounding at such a young age was massive. And then my mom was total bra burning feminist in the seventies when, you know, when I was born and um in my early formative years and she had me play with gender neutral toys and um one of my favorite books was Free to Be, You and Me and I
0: No, me too. Me too.
1: <laughs> it's yeah, and my mom taught me that um money gives women um a voice, voices and choices, that's what money gives women. And so I had tools for my dad and um, the emotional encouragement and logic um, to become a, a, a good steward of, of money from such a young age. And what's interesting is it was never about accumulating a lot of stuff, um, uh it wasn't until I graduated from high school that I realized like what an amazing job my dad had because deliberately we always lived beneath our means, um, always. And, you know, at, and, um, that's a whole other story we could talk about, uh, living beneath your means. Um, but as a result, um, I, I feel like I started with really positive money, um, Influences, And that's part of the reason why I'm so passionate about helping young women um, get this information, because it's useful at any point in your life. Um, but the earlier you can get it, um, the better. Yeah, I
0: love what you were taught by your parent, by both your parents. I mean, how beautiful, how, spe- how special, how really you got such important life skills. From each of them, and that father-daughter bonding. How were you? Twelve. I, I was eleven. Um, I was mm-hmm. My son's age. Okay. Wow. Wow. Okay. So free to be you and me. Younger than that, right? And then <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the father-daughter. This is compound interest, you know. Meetings. Amazing. Okay. What were you gonna say? I can No, know. I was just gonna
1: say and. You know, now that I reflect back on it, one of the things that really crystallized it all for me was when I read Virginia Woolf's book *A Room of One's Own*, and that kind of brought it all together. This notion that, um, essentially, she says a woman can't create without space, and and um, it, she used the number of five hundred pounds at a time um, uh, in the UK. Um, but the point being, you you need some Space to yourself and some money to yourself in order to be able to to create, which in 1917 when she wrote the book or whenever it was, was a revolutionary thought. Um, and that really pulled it all together to me. And so I always was a saver, but it was with the idea, um, not that I wanted to acquire a bunch of stuff, but that I wanted to acquire as many options to be able to leave a relationship if it's not working or a job if it's not working or help somebody, um, and do random acts of kindness. Um, and so it wasn't ever about stuff for me. Um, and, uh,
0: Hmm. yeah, yeah, no, I I get that. It's about choice. It's about giving. It's about having the time. Um, I, I read that same book and didn't, notice anything about the money I am I noticed about the space and really having your own space I didn't quite get the money thing until later so I love that you you saw both of those clearly in there and so many women that I've met over the years are terrified to leave a marriage because of money because they don't have their own or they've raised the kids which is equal contribution but they don't have the resources sitting for
1: them to feel comfortable to leave and so they choose- And that's terrifying. I mean absolutely terrifying when you when you think about it. Um you know in years past we used to have so much when I talk about years past I mean 100 150 years ago Um, We controlled so much more of our individual life in the sense that we grew our food. We built our own homes. Um, Obviously, one person didn't do all of that on their own. But collectively, um, we engaged in life-sustaining activities ourselves. Today, the way we engage in life-sustaining activities is by using money, to get them, and so it, 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 the thought of leaving without an understanding of money is essentially the thought of leaving without the tools for survival in modern in the modern world, and I think that um, it's never been easy for women to to leave a bad relationship in in any time there have been different societal issues going on, but I do think um these days that it, it's an even deeper trigger, the, the fear of leaving um, without understanding money um, or worrying about having enough is an even deeper fear. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, do you think there's other strengths or challenges that you received
1: from your lineage from either side? Yeah, I think, um, there are a couple that come to mind. So there are some uh, classic um, stories that my dad um, would tell me when I was growing up, and he still tells me them to, these these days when I need a reminder. But one in particular that really sticks with me is um, this this the story of the icebox repair person. And so. Um, back in the day, um, long ago in India, they called refrigerators iceboxes. And the story goes there was a villager who, um, had the first icebox in the village. It was a huge deal. He was really proud of it and it broke. And his wife was down, um, doing the washing at the, the river in the village with the other women and, you know, lamenting about this. And one of the women said, Hey, I, I heard there's this amazing icebox repair person three villages away. And so they sent word for the, the repair person to come, and finally the big day arrived, and the repair person shows up, and um, the husband's so excited, and he brings him into the, into the, the, the um, eating area where the ice box was, and the repair person lays out all their tools, and, and the husband goes out to the fields to work, and he comes back in at lunch, and it looks as if the repair person hasn't moved. They trusted that this was an expert, goes back out to the fields, comes back in, um, at the end of the day, and now there's like dust forming around, so like it is very clear that the repair person hasn't moved. And just as the um, husband was about to lose his marbles and start screaming, the repair person jumps up, hits the uh, ice box with a hammer, and suddenly the ice box starts working. And he turns to the the husband and said, "That'll be five hundred rupees." And at this point, the husband, he totally unloads. He's like, 500 rupees. I could have done that. And the repair person says, no, no, no. I'm, I'm only charging you one rupee for hitting the refrigerator. I'm charging you 499 rupees to figure out where to hit the refrigerator. <laughs> and as it relates to money, I mean, I, what I find is the actual action steps required to be a good steward of your money. Um, logistically, are pretty straightforward. Um, The hard part is unraveling all the emotions to allow you to get to the point where you can act on those basic um, timeless principles. Um, And so I think um, what I always took away from that that story was um, how important it is to find the handful of things that really matter and that you can control. And the intersection of that is where you should be focused on when it comes to your, your money. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, that has definitely stuck with me. And then the other thing that has stuck with me is we went to India probably every other summer when I was growing up. So I saw India long before the economic reforms and I remember back in the day we would take these huge Samsonite suitcases full of toilet paper, like the non-scratchy kind, because that was like such a delicacy. So we'd arrive and we'd like gift, you know, our family, like soft toilet paper. And they were like so excited. And we'd bring things like, um, you know, Prel shampoo for those who remember back in the day and um, Dove soap and um, uh Kellogg's brand flakes, and these were such um, items that were treated with such um, joy and used so sparingly. And, you know, now um, y- you can be in an airport in Mumbai and you would have no idea if you were in Mumbai or you were in the airport in San Francisco, things are so modern. But having seen that um, has been seared in my mind, and so I also feel that um, there's a level of frugality that kind of runs through my brain from a result of having at a young age seen what a third world country is really like. And, and my family in India was solidly upper middle class. So we had it way better. Um, and you know, as you, you just travel around the country, you see so many other people who are quite literally part of the huge portion of the population, even still today living on five dollars or less a day. And so, once you see that, you can't unsee it.
0: Mm-hmm. Whenever I tell stories of little little things that make me feel abundant, I talk about toilet paper, and and I and I, I feel like that seems odd, but it, you're you're revealing it's it's not you know is soft toilet paper and having a full basket of that you know is what me per- personally still to this day I feel very abundant you know <laughs> along with the flowers and good chocolate, but just a basket full of soft toilet paper It's like yeah I can remember times in my 20s when I didn't or yeah you know you're you're sharing so much I'm I'm having so many thoughts let's see okay one is that I was asked recently why when a financial planner gives their client this perfect plan you know with like all the calculations perfect you know (laughs) And this is, this is exactly what you need to do, you know, to retire. Why do people not do it? And your first story is a metaphor for that. Your first story shows that yes, there are very clear series of this is exactly the habits or strategies or the framework for what you do to be able to retire at this age or this age, right? And then there's all the emotional points or pain points, or how do we work with our own emotions that come up around money to help us navigate so that we can work with some set of a financial plan um, to get us to these, this future longer term goals, you know?
1: And I think people need to be gentle with themselves around the any difficulty they might experience in putting in place a financial plan. So for me, it's really it's super easy for me to follow those instructions. But the instructions, um, eat less, exercise more. Okay, that I have been struggling with my entire life. I bounce between a size 6 and a size 12, like whoosh, back and forth. Um, I can remember one time I went to do some – uh, a TV hit in Houston and I hadn't been in the studio for, uh, a year and, um, the, the last time I was there I was at the 12 end and, um, this time I was at the 6 end and, um, one of the associate producers said, oh, you had the baby. And, um, I remember just thinking, mm-hmm. you know, we all struggle with different things. I, I, I know the formula for staying at a healthy weight and I, before emotional reasons, I'm a binge eater. Like I just, and I work at it. I, I've read all the books. I'm, it's a constant, um, it, it's a, it's a constant practice that I have to engage in on a daily basis to eat normally. Um, and I think for many people, that's what happens to them with, with money and, What's underlying binge eating when it happens to me is emotions. And when people aren't sticking to a financial plan, what's underlying that is some type of emotion. And so to be gentle with ourselves. Um, and it doesn't mean we don't have to do the hard work. It just means we don't have to self-flagellate while we're doing the hard work.
0: Exactly. And that is women. We shape shift our bodies, shape shift hormones change. Perimenopause happens, you know, it is, and it changes our bodies. And sometimes, Emotional eating is okay. I mean, I just, I'm adding in gentleness to this as well, you know, that um, in a long life, we're going to go through different phases and we're going to go to different relationships to what our appetite is and what size our bodies are, similar to what size our bank accounts are and the ebbs and flows that we have there as well. And that it's a long, you know, fine tuning and long-term journey of how to work with all the ins and outs and the emotions of this. Yeah. So please let's detour into um, a challenging money experience that you had, that you got through. Now, I know for a lot of my financial planners, because you're savers, natural savers, because you're natural at being frugal, because you're so natural at future long-term planning, sometimes I interviewed a financial planner who said, No, I've been planning since I was so young and he came from a permaculture background. He could not come up with a challenging money experience where there was a curveball because he's such a good planner that he's planned for everything and he works on resilience. So do you have a story for us?
1: I do. I have um, an extended uh, family member who, um, I adore, who was going through some financial challenges of, uh, I'll use gender neutral pronouns here, um, in case any of my family are listening, um, going through some challenging issues of their own creation. And I was trying to help out financially. Um, and I helped. And then I got, I was asked for more help. And I gave and I was asked for more help. And I gave, and every time I gave help, I gave financial guidance as well, and pretty soon I saw there is no behavior change going on here, but I love this person, and they're part of my family, and um, how do I, you know, do I cut them off, how, like, what do I do, how do I, especially in the Indian culture, family, in any culture, family is so meaningful, um, but it's deeply inculcated in the Indian community that your extended family is like your limbs. Your cousins are like your brothers and sisters. In fact, they call them, you know, cousin brother, cousin sister. And so um, it was really painful for me to have to um, tell this person that I could not help them anymore um, with anything other than advice and guidance um, until I saw some change in, in behavior and, um, that just like ripped, like that was so hard because I kept thinking, I am so fortunate. I could solve all of this person's problems tomorrow. Like I, with one check, I could solve them all. And, um, it was just, it was so, I remember crying and crying, um, about and just asking the universe, what should I do? Um, and i'm happy to say that uh without the lifeline um of financial help from other directions people are resilient and this family member is now doing um great <laughs> right. so that's the whole
0: thing so it wasn't so much about you but it's about the people that are closest to you and their own money relationship and their own patterns and their own habits and their own money story and for this person they may have been a pattern of um needing to be saved asking to be saved um asking for others to help. And there's nothing wrong with sharing money or passing on money or giving gift money or giving a loan, right? There's there's moments for all of that. But it sounds like there had been some of that um in many different forms and you came to a place where it felt like it would be enabling or it just felt like it wasn't the right move for you to write them a check. It may have solved some issues, but would habits or patterns or behavior have changed we don't know, right? Or maybe you, there was history where it didn't. And so the person um, took was able to come to their own change, yeah, and move through it on their own.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And when I think about it, um, because I've always lived beneath my means, I mean, I remember when I got out of Harvard Business School, um, for like my first three years working, Um, I had, um, two black suits, you know, two pairs of heels and, um, like, I think I I was living in Houston at the time. I think I had two sundresses and a pair of jeans and two t-shirts. Like, I mean, I had barely anything. Um, and I, I mean, I was just saving, saving, saving. And so as a result of that saving habit, I have, and because my profession was, uh, investing before I moved into the individual side with their financial planning, I was investing. So I didn't incur debt, I saved voraciously, and I started to in, invest um, early and often. And when you do those three, three things, you can cover up an awful lot of other mistakes. Um, I mean, there have been periods of time where I've spent money on stupid things, but Um, My mistakes had a deeper safety net because I was doing those things right. But where I've had extreme pain around money has been in relationships. My ex-husband is an amazing human being. His goal is to die with exactly zero in his bank account to maximize every last ounce of joy out of the money he has. And my goal was to live off my dividends and interest and pass on the money I had to charity and my nieces and nephews. Like we could not have been further apart on our outlooks on money. And that was really painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think what I want to say is um there are a variety of and I made a mistake i I thought I could change him, and he thought he could change me and it you know we we've divorced amicably, but um we made mistakes in misjudging how important it is to be in financial alignment um in relationships and, and um and so i I guess I want to say that um we all, make and have, and we all make mistakes and struggle with money in different, in different ways. Um, the, the last example I'll give, and I'm not proud of this at all. Um, in fact, I'll tear up as I say it because I always do. But I, um, I didn't go to my grandmother's funeral because I was um, in San Francisco with my fancy big job, staying at the Four Seasons, and I thought these meetings that I had were so important. And in my quest to build my career and move forward and and be an executive, I didn't go to my own grandmother's funeral. And I look back and I think, how effed up was my value system? Um, and in my mind, this is what I thought: Well, she's passed. She loves me. She's up there. She knows I I care. And it never even occurred to me that funerals are about the living. And my mom needed me, and my aunt needed me, and my grandmother's partner needed me. And um, mm. so, yeah, I've made a lot of money mistakes. They may not be that, you know, I screwed up my credit score because of this, but they've been painful ones because they've involved love and the heart and emotions and humanity. Right. You because you
0: had the money clearly to go. That wasn't that wasn't the issue. That's you were
1: choosing. I made a very, very bad choice, and um, yeah, I did, and I can't take it back.
0: so how do you work with that? You tell the story, you cry, you feel the pain of that um misstep in that choice and you, I I can see your face. That's why I'm I. You know I I can see you. And no,
1: you can you can see. Yeah me too. yeah yeah. I mean, I I try and not fight the feeling. I I try and let it be a good reminder. I think maybe that's my grandmother sending a message down to me. Like, honey, it's okay. You screwed up. Let's just not do that again. Don't, don't put work and career ahead of family and friends and what really matters in life. And so I try and take it as a message, but it still makes me incredibly sad when I think about that. And I don't think that the goal should be to make the sadness go away, but to think, well, okay, what, what can I do with this? Um, and I can help other people by sharing the story and hopes that they don't make the same mistake in terms of prioritizing things in an order that they may come to regret down the road. I don't want to say you shouldn't put career ahead of this or that. Um, It's different for everyone. The question is, at the end of the day, will you be happy with the order of focus and priority that you you put on things? Um, And so, yeah, that's
0: Mhm, And it's different at all times that I'm hearing, like for you, it's telling the story, sharing it, and really learning the learning a lesson through it so that you have made different choices since then, yeah, really living the lesson and doing it differently, yeah, yeah and and really talking with your grandma, still yeah. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I can see that. Um, so let's go full circle a little bit. And um, with all of this, how are you working um, with the emotions of the terror or the fear of the bad lady coming up? Because that's not what the numbers show. That's not what the retirement, retirement accounts show. You can retire now as you're... Stepping into your 50th year, you know, Um, and how 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 are you going to continue to work with those emotions around that?
1: First, I want to acknowledge it's a highbrow problem to have. And I I meet so many incredibly smart, hardworking people who are drowning in student loan debt, struggling with financial burdens that come about because they're dealing with elderly parents while trying to raise children, while trying to work. And so hearing somebody whine that they're, you know, afraid they're going to run out of money when they have plenty um, can sound really annoying. Um, well, I, for me, I think it comes down to trying to remember What the whole purpose of having money was in the very beginning years of my life when I first learned about it, and that was to have a voice and to have choices. And I, um, feel very blessed that I haven't always made the right choices, um, but I have had the ability to have a voice and make choices. And if I, um, At the end of the day, that's what it's there for. And I also remind myself that the things that bring me the greatest joy in life are always small daily joys, really simple things. And, um, you know, and I told you, well, when we started talking, I spoke about how when I moved to Portland, I didn't even have a fork. Everything that came into my life was a deliberate addition. And I thought, really, um, I was very mindful about what I chose to bring in. And we can live on a lot less than we think. That's what I learned from starting all over again is how little I need to be happy. Mm-hmm. And so I remind myself um that, you know, I hope that doesn't happen. But if it were to happen, um, most likely I would bounce back like a weeble wobble. Would it be fun? No. Um, but that the, there's a core of resilience in most of us, especially if we've been and we at least know the right financial steps, um, and I don't know if that's—I don't know if there's a better way to think about it or expunge the fear. I—I—I I, I try not to fight it. I try to just like, okay, I—I I have fear flowing through me around this, and—and um, and know that I also have a an a energetic flow of of strength too, and um, yeah, just. Uh, I, I don't have a clear answer, and I think that is you, the answer. You do, but
0: No, you just shared quite a few things. You don't fight it. You don't push it away. You sit in it. You let it move through you. At the same time, you also have a different version of the story or a different part of you that's there holding, you know, you would bounce back. You have the strength. You have the resilience. You've been through lots of things, you know. Um, and that probably won't happen, but even if it does, so you work with it. I hear that you work with it. You sit with it. You feel it. You say hello. You know, we all have different things that come up. Is the tape going to completely go away? Sometimes they do, but sometimes they just get quieter and quieter and say, oh, hello, I'm here. I'm, you know, Miss Bag Lady is saying hello. Um, And I really appreciate you saying, like, this may sound annoying to all of you, To have this, but this again, this is your story, and this is, you know, you've been working on this since you were really young, um, and some things have come natural for you, and then you've had other challenges, as you spoke about, you know, about having a chemical imbalance, and, you know, it doesn't mean that we have saved so much money or we have so much money in our bank accounts, we have no issues, and you know that, I know that, we've seen that for years, yes, it helps to have all your basic needs met, you know, and go from there. So, what's on the horizon for you? I know you're um on the verge of fifty, as we've said, you're on the verge of some unknown too. you don't know, but any any visions
1: coming through well, you shared a lot, so anything else yeah yeah i um uh I Love Martha Beck's book, Finding Your North Star, and my North Star right now is um, a podcast that I launched that came about very serendipitously in a conversation with the CEO of Brighton Jones, and um, uh, it's called True Wealth, spelled W-E-L-L-T-H, and it is the most enjoyable professional experience I've ever had. His point was after 20 years of managing money for really rich people, he knew without a doubt that money does not bring happiness, and that happiness comes from aligning the way you spend your money and your time with what matters most to you in life. And so we wanted to figure out, like, well, how do you do that? If you define well-being as their social, emotional, physical, and financial components, um, what are the the steps, the baby steps, the radical reboots that can help people get that money, time, meaning alignment um, where they want it in their life. And so um, I am having the best time, um, and uh, I am hoping that maybe I might be able to convince you to come on, um, and I really am enjoying having people go on this journey with me. Because I'm trying to figure out what is true wealth, W-E-L-L-T-H, um, and uh, so that's the thing that's been bringing me the the greatest uh, joy.
0: Mm, I love it. I love it.
1: I think almost on in every
0: interview, I've talked about the equation of money, time, energy, family, and health. And my last interview, she added in um, social, political. Um, parts she's um a black woman, a single woman of four boys, and she said that's the f- sixth part of the equation that she would add in her view, her experience um, does that resonate with you? Is there
1: another one that you would add, or is i mean I feel like um that when I boil it down to um managing your time and your money, I, I highlight those two because those are the inputs that enable us to have the space to do the activism that we want, to have the space um, and the resources to take the time to participate in the kinds of community activities that will make the difference that we want to make. And so I feel like when I hear all of those, to me, those are just beautiful slices of the pie that i would call meaning and m- meaning is different for all of us and so to me the goal is um you know i i, I call my side operation my side gig money's zen, and to me it's this this sense that you are able to take your scarce resources in terms of time and money and squeeze as much meaning and joy out of them as you can. So I think we're all saying the same thing in just different ways. Yeah, I love it. And and everyone can find you at
0: is it Money Zen? Is it at MoneyZen. dot com? Okay, beautiful. Anything else to complete anything about your money story? Um, this time in your life,
1: anything else? I think the biggest thing I want to share, I have worked for two self-made billionaires when I was on the institutional side of my career, both amazing, amazing human beings that built their businesses from scratch, incredibly generous. But what I've come to realize is it doesn't matter how much money you have, the most important things to both of them were their families, and th- then there were deaths and pains and divorces and, and all kinds of things that happened within families, and it doesn't matter how much money you have. So it's like this odd, um, when it comes to money, I think the thing that I am finally realizing is in the first half of my life, I spent so much time focusing on the mechanics of money um, and what I've had as a result of being able to see up close people with exceptional amounts of wealth is the mechanics are important because it's not fun to be drowning in debt. Um, it feels like you're being smothered. But on the same token, you don't want to have false thinking that just that the elimination of money problems is going to solve everything. There's a, a rope between it, which is all the emotional muck inside of us. And whether you're super rich or you are on the verge of foreclosure, you can have the same amount of financial muck inside of you and it w- doesn't feel good. And that's the, that's the human journey, right? Is getting that out and sorting through. It and taking away what, what should stay and letting go of what needs to be let go of. And so it's tried to say money doesn't bring you happiness. Well, it does when you can't pay your bills. It really brings you happiness. It relieves stress. Um, so I think that's a ridiculous statement, but I want to say there are a lot of similarities in terms of when you look back on your life, what matters and what doesn't matter, um, is much more soul based, um, than I think we may give credit to and are busy, busy 24 7, always on social media world.
0: Manisha, thank you so much for being on with me today. Thank you for your stories. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for all that you've gone through and are willing to share so openly and honestly. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to finally get to meet you <laughs> as we're both in, and you know, had a, you know, 50th as we're both stepping into our, our, in our 50th year. So thank you. Thank you.
1: Barry, thank you so much. You have done such amazing work. Um, it's just unbelievable to see how many lives you've touched with your work. And so it's a real treat and honor to, Get to speak with you here today. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining me with this money memoir interview. I really hope you found something here to take with you, whether it was a lesson, some inspiration, or even just a little grace for yourself and where you are in your money journey. If you're feeling called to wade deeper here, please pack your financial goals, soul deep aspirations and grab your favorite person. The art of money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices and money maps and blends therapeutic body-based practices with real life tools that we all need to create healthy, sustainable change in our money lives. So if you'd like to begin your money healing journey with the art of money today, learn more
1: at Barry